You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Ritani. Looking for an engagement ring? Check out Ritani, R-I-T-A-N-I, shop online, and your ring is made in New York and then sent to you or a local jeweler. It's that easy. R-I-T-A-N-I dot com slash sports. Go there today for their free diamond giveaway. Where else in life is that going to happen? Because you're hanging around John McEnroe? I mean, that's the mystique that he has outside of sport. It's, it's a, I, I, look, I spent nine years with Barry Bonds every day for nine years. And Barry, who was, is the all-time home run king, nowhere near, not even close to the world level of attraction that John McEnroe has. And I, again, would never have guessed that 23 years ago when we started. It's been a heck of a lot of fun to live through it. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast Beyond the Baseline. We've got a great guest this week, Ted Robinson, for our money, as good a play-by-play broadcaster as exists in sports, never mind in tennis. You know him likely from his various tennis work over the past 30 years for USA, for NBC, for Tennis Channel now. He gets back from two weeks at the French Open. We're going to recap Roland Garros a little bit, talk about tennis on TV, talk about Ted's relationship with John McEnroe, who is his longtime partner in the booth. Fun conversation with one of the all-time good guys, longtime friend of mine. Let's bring him in from the South Bay of San Francisco. Ted Robinson, how are you? Thanks for doing this. John, it is great to be home. I saw sun. We landed in San Francisco yesterday, and the sun was out. You know how good that felt. I still haven't seen it in New York, but uh, that that was a we, we don't have to start by talking about the weather, but that was a remarkable stretch of rain, was it not? I felt it shaped this Roland Garros, John, more than any I've been to. This was, uh, I think, 19 for me, and I thought by far it was the most challenging to win because the rain and the cold, and you know, coupled with the Terrebatu, which is in and of itself a massive challenger made this an event that 
reminded me very much of early U.S. Opens. I worked uh, in the 80s and 90s when players had to beat New York as well as the other players, and we would always see those great players that hated New York or just didn't like the atmosphere of playing at the Open, uh, and they had to find a way to conquer that. That's what I felt more like on this Roland Garros than ever before. So my admiration for Djokovic and for Muguruza is even higher because they came through that, and especially Novak, to play five out of the last six days and look just as strong and fresh at the end as he did at the beginning. It's pretty. To me, that was really breathtaking. He he did, didn't he? Yeah. Let, let's um let's start here. Yeah. Let's let's wrap up this event because this, this will air a few days after, and uh, we'll we'll t- talk about enough about tennis. We'll talk about you in a minute. But let's yeah. What what else struck you? I mean, you you were there for the long haul. You obviously called matches both for Tennis Channel and for NBC. Apart from and I and I agree, this was really sort of this this interesting battle for Djokovic on any number of fronts: the the weather, the history, the opposition, the changing circumstances. What else? Uh, what else are you going to recall this event for? Well, unfortunately, uh, as much as I love Paris and I love this event and I want it to stay so badly in its location, I, I think you feel the same way, John. I think most tennis people want it to stay where it is, uh, but to me, this one was the, the tipping point French Open of they must, as soon as possible, upgrade, modernize contemporize it's just it's just been left in the dust and again this goes back to reminding me of what it felt like uh in the mid-90s at the u.s open when the when the footprint of the property was just too small and the stadium had just outlived and i'm speaking of armstrong here had outlived its usefulness the world was moving on the event was getting bigger and the actual venue had to change with the event Uh, and then the second u.s open uh, point was 2003, which was the rain open. Right. And that right. confirmed the fact that there had to be a roof. It was no longer if, it was when. And now we realize 13 years later, it's going to happen. That's how long it took. Right? I was say, the, the, the when that took 13 years, that was the year Roddick won. It was a lot of the same talk. It was five matches in six days, and it was the, the players don't know whether to, to eat or nap. It was a lot of the same sort of the, the cut-and-paste lines from this event, it took 13 years. I, I would like to see the French get a roof in 2020, as we've talked about, but we, well, we realize it's a lot easier to come up with one of those neat architectural diagrams than it is to actually get the thing get the thing built. Yeah. Um, you, you don't think the French Open can make it as Wrigley Field and as, hey, it's this throwback event and our grounds are almost 100 years old and they're steeped in history and we're not going to have these modern trappings. You don't think they can do this uh, in, a, in a Fenway Park kind of way? Well, well John, but that, there's right, my answer would be to you is I think they can do Fenway Park there. That's why I'm saying I pray it stays on its location. I'm hoping they can you know, expand a little bit, you know, give themselves a little more space in their current location. But why couldn't they do what Fenway Park has done? Fenway Park has modernized Yet it's still Fenway, right? When you walk in, you realize you're in this 100-plus-year-old gem of a baseball venue. I don't know why Paris couldn't do the same thing. And I just fear that if they don't, um, one is they'll hear more grumblings from players. And secondly, at some point, the money will outstrip them, won't they? I mean, they have to be able to generate more revenue. Prize money will not go down. And this year, we know they had a 
a terrible day where they had to refund 100% of their tickets, and the very next day there was a blatantly transparent <laughs> call to stop play at two hours and one minute, and they got called on it, which was probably a good thing. But I just, I just think that the venue needs to modernize. And right. I think Guy Forget, listening to all the things he said, like you did, John, I thought he let slip one line to me that was so candid and true, which is Paris's bid to land the 2024 Olympics. And we'll know that next summer. Somewhere next summer is when that, those games will be granted. I think Paris has a very good shot. And if they get it, that could be the spur to accelerate and make Guy Forget's line come true, where you could have a roof by 2020, because I, I know that will be part of the Olympic bid. It will be a must for the Olympic Games. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I thought that the, um, I mean, sort of these battle lines were really interesting, where usually fans complain about a venue or an event and the team or the league gets defensive. And here it was Guy Forget. I mean, they were like, listen, we're, we're with you. We're, we're dying to get this thing built. We need to just get this this legislation passed and whether it's the neighbors or whether it's the Paris city council or the environmentalists, we're on your side. We, we want this roof every bit as badly as you do. Yeah. And I know John television gets the front um, uh, finger pointed at it and blamed for all these things. And look, television's a big part of it, but this is also to me about players. This is, these are the four competitions a year that the tennis players work the hardest for and want the most to win. And they need to have their best chance to do so. So I go back to that 2003 U.S. Open that we lived through. Uh, and as there were three consecutive days of tennis that were washed out, where barely a ball was struck at, uh, at the U.S. Open Tennis Center, 500 yards away, the New York Mets played three straight games uninterrupted. Because it was just that spray mist. <laughs> that mist, yeah. Stuff yeah, that yeah you yeah. can play baseball through, right. but you can't play tennis through. So I'm, I'm sitting there, I mean, this is slapping all of us across the face, the absurdity of this, right? They can play baseball through this, but you have hundreds of millions of dollars in world broadcasters that can't put anything on the air. You've got, of course, tens of thousands of ticket holders denied, and the best athletes in the world in your sport are sitting around staring at each other. We can't play? I mean, this, there has to be a better solution. So that's what, to me, again, John, I thought this year's Roland Garros was, was that moment. The French federation now is backed into a corner they have right. their by the way we all went by it every day coming in their beautiful new office building right <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly the they block. got that bill they have that set up right. okay let's fix the venue let's make this now the best it can be for this major championship it, it took the u.s open uh 13 years so by by 2029 we, we will have uh, covered clay what, what did you um I, I you talked about Djokovic. i know you you called the women's final too what did you make of uh Serena Williams, who, of course, now is three straight majors getting to the final weekend and then not being able to close. Well, look, she got through again. She didn't have to beat a top player on the way there, but that's not her fault. You know, Djokovic didn't have a, a, as sturdy a road as he's had to face in the past either. But again, we all understand in those single eliminations, that's not their fault. Um, Serena got through, but I felt this was, this was so different than past ones where she flat got beat. And unlike her Friday semifinals, Serena came out ready to play. You watched, to me, the first three, four games of the final. She struck the ball. Whatever issues, whatever the physical stuff, and we all understand the, the, the splash of drama that goes into most Serena matches on the big stage, whatever was there in the quarters and the semis was not there in the finals. 
You didn't see her limping or walking sluggishly. She came out and served well up front, smacked the ball hard, and Muguruza was better. Right. And, and I, John, I, I know I do some of these things I do to prompt my good friend, Mr. McEnroe, but I turned to him uh, after Garbini because I think I called three of her matches on the way there, and I turned to him Friday when we were on NBC and looking ahead to the final, I said, is it possible to conceive that Serena would not be a favorite tomorrow? And, of course, he looked at me and he laughed. He goes, no, <laughs> you can't. She's the favorite. But I, I was asking that question with, with semi-belief on my own, that the way Muguruza was playing and the way she had dismantled good players, that she was serious. And I think during the women's final, I raised the, the comparative point that it was very reminiscent to me in many ways of the 2004 Wimbledon final when Maria came out of nowhere and literally hit Serena off the court. Right, just took it to her. And that's what... Now, we had seen Muguruza do it two years ago to Serena, but it was in the second round, and this was obviously far brighter lights. But to me, it was the same kind of match. Serena was ready, and Serena played well. Muguruza was better. I've talked before about how it can be so tough to write about the Williams sisters and Serena in particular. How is it to do play-by-play, you know, to, to call their matches? I mean, you've, you've done this for, for, for 20 years now. Um, what challenges do they or don't they present? Well, they are the Williams versus Williams matches, I think have been the most challenging uh, events I've ever been presented to call in any sport in any life because they've been, for the obvious reasons, transformational figures in their sport, great champions. Uh, through 20 years, we, we all know the backstories and the various iterations of, of the father and the family stories tragedy with the sister die, with the sister being murdered, etc. We've seen all that. Um, Serena has rarely, in my opinion, rarely been very willing to cooperate with any of us, collective us, to help present her story in a better way. Venus, I think, has done more of that, at least in my experience, has been. And then there's the obvious you know, elephant in the room issue that um, everything that has been said about them, John, at least in my world, especially the first 10 years of them was filtered through the, the race prism. Sure. And sure. I can't believe the number, I mean, I, the first five, six years when they were playing each other in, in the early 2000s in all of the major events. And I would have so many people corral me and question about things that I said, things that Chris Everett, who I was working with on NBC, then would say, um, and how could you phrase it that way or say this thing? And, and it was stunning at first. I think it was educational because it, it really hammered home to me the point that when you say things, and I'm sure you feel this way as a writer, John, when you write things, they're coming from you in one meaning. They can be received by another set of ears or eyes in a far different way. And that, to me, was the lesson I learned about, about calling the Williams versus Williams matches. Um, I had a famous... A network broadcaster corner me at the Olympics one year with NBC and you know pretty much hammering me over a couple of words I used that were the you know we go back to the famous code word um, uh, question that we've always had that here's something you would say about an African American athlete and you would never say that same word about a white athlete and we've all been through these discussions. Right. Um, I just read a story in your magazine about Christian McCaffrey that flipped the switch right where where his father Ed who I covered back at Stanford days, 
was saying the same thing. He hears all the code words said about Christian being this white running back. Um, it's the same issue. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Great, yeah. great so, story. So anyway, we've got. It, it's been re- it's been remarkably challenging, uh, and and it, it has been really has been instructive. And then the 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 best part to me later years has been getting to work with Lindsay Davenport. And the first time I worked with Lindsay, I'm pretty sure, was the Miami tournament. This was when she left the tour to have her first child. And she did some broadcasting. And I had known Lindsay as a player like you did. But we're doing the Miami event. This is maybe eight, nine years ago now for Fox. And Venus and Serena play each other in the quarterfinals. Maybe it was, it was not the finals. And we start doing the match. And 10 minutes in, I dropped the headset. We went to break. I said, I've never had this experience before. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, you know their games. Right, right. And this was the point. This was 10 years ago. And I've said this to television people repeatedly since then. Is Lindsay is, to this day, the only analyst on television who has that perspective. She played so many matches against both of them. She was calling out their serving patterns and their tendencies. It was brilliant analysis that only she could provide. And that has made, I think, the, the, the Williams v. Williams matches far, far better television to call in recent years. And she can articulate it, too. I mean, uh, no, Lin- Lindsay's terrific. Um, I-, I wanted to ask you, because I-, I was thinking, I don't know the answer to this. Um, you have called virtually every sport. Y- you know what I didn't realize, by the way? Trivia. That's your voice in A Few Good Men, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Am I right? Yeah, there's one, there's one scene there's where it's Minnesota Twins, actual, uh, Minnesota Twins baseball yeah. game when, when my good friend Tom is swinging the bat in the apartment. Hold that thought, Ted. Quick word from our sponsor. I want to tell you about a new site that will help make the engagement process a little bit easier. Those of us who have gone through it know that it is filled with all sorts of nervous energy and excitement, but it is also fraught, especially when it comes to buying a ring. It's never as easy as it should be. Until now, go to Ritani.com. Check it out. Jamie and I were just looking at the website. All of their rings are handcrafted in New York. Shop online. They ship it to you overnight, right to your address or to a Ritani jeweler close to you. If it's not exactly right, return it. No hassle. The ring shopping is on your terms. No pressure. No pushy salespeople. No one's trying to upsell you. You design the ring. Again, look at this easy-to-use website, as Jamie and I have been. They handcraft the ring. You choose it. You choose when to get it. They deliver it to your home or to a jeweler near you. It is that simple. Give the perfect ring. Feel great about doing it. No hassles. This month, they're giving away a diamond. Just visit Ritani, R-I-T-A-N-I.com slash sports today for the free diamond giveaway. How would you get started in tennis? Complete random occurrence. It was uh, the mid-'80s, and I was uh, in my 20s working in San Francisco in radio, and I was doing some Major League Baseball and some NBA games. I mean, I, I had a lot of fortunate breaks, John, when I was in my 20s out in California that got me going. And uh, actually, this, it, two things happened the same year. One was Bob Costas was incredibly gracious and recommended me to NBC as a backup uh baseball announcer for games of the week, the Saturday game of the week. And for young people who don't remember, back then NBC did a Saturday game of the week, and they always had a West Coast game. And as a result, I got hired in 1986 by NBC to do about four or five Saturday baseball games when they had doubleheader days. I would get the West Coast second game of the doubleheader. So it was a smaller audience, but you're 28 years old. Yeah, right. You're doing a national game at 28. Not bad. Exactly. It was an extraordinary 
opportunity. The same year when that happened, I got a call and was asked to come to New York and meet people at USA Network, which in the mid-'80s was far ahead of ESPN. I mean, blew ESPN out of the water in live sports coverage. USA Network at one point was televising Major League Baseball regularly, NBA regularly, NHL regularly, and they were very committed to tennis in, in, in this era. So I flew to New York, and I met them, and they were interested in an announcer, and I thought at this time they would like someone who could come in and do a bunch of sports. And they said, well, we're really interested in tennis. And, of course, I had to laugh because I had grown up in New York on a golf course. My dad was a crazy golfer as his hobby. Uh, he was a Wall Street trader in his weekly life and then a golfer on the weekends. And so I was from 13 years on. I was Danny Noonan. Okay. <laughs> And that's, that's what I grew up doing. So I didn't know tennis. I literally did not know the sport. I knew names. I understood how to keep score. But knowing the sport, no. And they said, that's okay. We have people who know the sport. We want a, you know, basically a professional traffic cop. So uh, to shorten the story, I was given a tryout on air. And the first event I ever called was in October of 1986 at the Cal Palace in San Francisco. Oh, man. And our uh, guy that became a partner and a dear friend, Barry McKay's tournament. And the first match I ever called was McEnroe against Connors in the finals of the Trans-America Open in San Francisco. So I walked away from that thinking, hey, tennis isn't so bad. And, of course, Mary Carrillo, God bless her, laughed at me because they're not all like that. (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, So anyway, I, I did probably two or three more events in the spring of 1987 on tryouts for USA. And then eventually they said, we want you to work the U.S. Open in 1987. And I started and didn't stop for a long, long time. So that's ultimately how it started. It was a complete random, and it's the one thing, John, I tell broadcast classes when I speak to college classes all the time or people who want to get in the business is you just, you just can't plan everything and don't swim upstream. You know, go with the current. And so when tennis happened and I I fell into this thing and I got I started it and, and got into it okay and made some friends and um, worked wonderfully with Barry and worked with Tracy and then Vitas Garolitis who I worked with for maybe four years and actually you know really became as as good a friend as you could be probably in four years of working with someone uh, with Vitas and then ultimately of course John and, and John someone that I become a friend a personal friend with over 23 or four years of doing this that I would have never envisioned. So you can't plan it, you can't dream it, but when it happens, don't fight it. That's great advice. Well, how, how do you, um, you are more than a professional traffic cop, but how, how do you kind of see your role? I mean, as, as play-by-play, especially in a sport like tennis, especially when you're working with a personality like John, um, I, I imagine that's a lot different than calling a baseball game. I mean, how, how do you, what are sort of your organizing principles when you get up there in the booth and you've got, a best of five match to call. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a great question, John, because it does it it does change a little bit depending on who you're working with, two person versus three. When there's three announcers in the booth, I, I've always believed uh, that the Dick Enberg, Al McGuire, Billy Packer right, college right, basketball right. trio was the template. That's the gold standard of a three announcer situation, and the play by play person really has to step back a bit uh, and and allow the analysts to carry the show and do their thing. And then you are, in essence, a, a professional traffic cop and that you, you organize, you, stru- you keep structure, um, you keep the basics there. 
and and make sure that I think the storylines, the basic storylines, are are followed. I mean, that's you know that's what I even this past weekend. I mean, championship matches are not time for talk show conversation. You know, championship match. So you make sure we stay on that. Hey, this is about Serena today, or is it about this young player from Spain who's basically pounding her? Is it about Novak and does he have the nerves and the steel to finally finish something that he's wanted so long? Drive those stories. And the other template, John, is I use is um, my mother and my late grandmother, and I used to use this all the time in the booth by remembering, listen, my mother is the only person in America watching this match today that cares what I think about tennis. Okay? <laughs> I'm sitting up there with champions, and that's the strength to me, John, that tennis provides on television far greater than any sport I've ever been around. The best people who played this sport analyze it. Right? I mean, just look at who we're around. Uh, you walk in the Tennis Channel green room right. at the French Open most days and, look, and just count the championships in there, right? Yeah, exactly. And that, and that doesn't count John, who was a Tennis Channel for a while, is now just NBC, or Chrissy, who uh, came for the second week to work for Eurosport. But just look at the championships. It's, it's crazy. How do you not take advantage of that and let them be the analysts and, and, and be, they, they take the lead? And so that's really the ultimate statement, I think, about my role, John, is just to, to tee it up and to set these people up and let them, uh, to let them drive. And lastly, the other one, I just read your, the great story Tom Verducci wrote about Scully. Right, right. And he said it right. Vin, Vin said it best. He said, you know, look, the whole point is you don't let yourself get ahead of the game. And no one is, you know, I mean, Vin Scully is Michelangelo in our profession anyway, but no one has followed that credo more than Vin. And we can all cringe when we hear events on the air where the announcer is trying to put himself or herself ahead of the event. And it's just, it's, it's not serving the viewer. Do, do you have to? No, that's a good. I mean, especially now, and especially kind of the way the the game is played, and and where you you follow the money at some level. I mean, has it been a struggle? Have you had to resist that to sublimate your ego, or is that just not a gene you have? Well, that's a hard one for me to answer. Um, but do you, do you have to tell I, I yourself think, like time time to lay time to lay back a little bit, or is, is that just not the way you operate? I left. once upon a time. Uh, another network executive, this is back when I was in probably my 30s and was, uh, you know, having opportunities to do things. And it was, stuff was happening. And this was in New York. It was probably during the open. He took me to lunch. And one thing he said, look, you know, the one thing, you, if you really want to, you know, be at the top, you have to act like a star. You don't act like a star. <laughs> and, I, and I laughed because he was, you, I know he you meant You do this not act like a star. He, well, he meant this in his mind. That was sincere. And, of course, the challenge became that was not my mind. And so I just looked at him and I just said, well, what if that's not who I am? And he said, well, then you won't make it big. You, you have to carry yourself and act like it and demand it. And, and I just, that's the only answer I can give today is the same answer I gave to him. That's not who I am. Um, and, John, I ultimately believe this. I, there's In sports casting, there are two types of sportscasters. There are people who truly love the games or the events, the competition, people like me who wanted to play and at some point you're eliminated. So you think, okay, what's next best? Well, maybe I'd be the guy that sits up there and gets to talk about the games. How, how much fun would that be? Well, 
the, the, the sportscasters that like the events and the competition are the ones who call events. They end up gravitating to being at the venue. The other type of sportscaster is the person that likes to be on the air. They like to perform, and that's in their gene. And sports television happens to be their, their channel to perform. Those are the people that gravitate to studio work and try to make where they can make themselves the show and be funny and witty and clever and quip masters and all that. Those people don't do events well, generally, because they're accustomed to putting themselves in front. And when you step on the event stage and you're sitting next to someone who played or coached that sport for decades and probably at a very high level, it isn't about you. It's about them. And that's a hard adjustment, I think. I've seen this for a lot of people who come from that second world and then decide, I'm tired of being in a studio. I want to be out there and be where the action is. Right, it's right. A tough, tough call to make. Um, I, I think you need pocket squares. You need nicknames. You need catchphrases. All you're doing is uh, calling the action. How are you going to? Uh, how are you going to be a star? How are you, Ted Robinson, going to host your own game show one day? When I can't recall a single nickname that you've bestowed on a player. Um, <laughs> Thanks. I take that as a great compliment. Exactly. Uh, how do you? Um, I, I'm sure you guys ask this all the time, and you do at any number of sports. And I think that uh, you know everyone in the Bay Area. I, I talk to people in the Bay Area; they don't even realize you do tennis. And I think people in tennis say, wait, this, this guy's the voice of the 49ers and does Pac-12? I know him as uh, the guy who's setting up McEnroe. Let, let's talk about John a little bit, though. Um, you know, anyone in tennis and anyone outside tennis knows he can, you know, he, he works a little temperamental sometimes. I mean, why do you think it's worked so well with him? For me, is that the question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how have you made this work for, for as long as you have? Well, that's... That's, a, that's the magic chemistry question that there is no you know, f- formula for, John. There's no, there's no uh, instruction booklet. A lot of this just happened, and I've often thought, look, we're about a year apart in age. We, you know, even, though I've, guys. Right. even though I've lived in California most of my adult life, I'm a New Yorker born and raised, so a lot of the sensibilities are the same. Um, we definitely clicked to me on one uh, front, which was that both of us are spontaneous. Um, I can't script anything, and John is a total improv guy. He loves it. So in 23 years of live television, we've done one, excuse me, we've never done one rehearsal, not one, in 23 years. Um, I think we've probably done four production meetings in 23 years. So uh, it works. That part of it's worked. Um, I, I love the fact that John has always been able to poke fun at himself. He, he, Believe it or not, on the air, as long as I've worked with him, he's always been that way. His only request is that you take it, if you dish it out a little bit, because I'll generally jab him, <laughs> but he knows he can jab me back, and I'll take it. Right, right. And, and he loves that. John loves that that verbal byplay. And, uh, and that's worked, I think that's worked very well with both of us, too. And... I mean, the, the greatest honor that I've ever received working with John was two or two of them were both at Wimbledon in our NBC years at Wimbledon. And one was during the Federer-Nadal 2008 final, the, the match. And at some point, after all the rain torture, uh, we were in another delay, and the command came from Dick Ebersol running NBC Sports, drop the window in front of our broadcast booth, and just tell Ted to talk to John. And we did like 15 minutes, I think, that way, just of talking head just, television. Just, just rain fill of talking. Oh, that's great. That's in great. the corner of center court. 
but it was me being up John and letting John go and me kind of steering subtly, perhaps responding. But it was just two guys talking. And I thought that was just, I, I, that, to me, that was an incredible compliment because it's so anti-typical television. And the other compliment was uh, in 2010 when Bjorn came back to Wimbledon and it was the 30th anniversary of the tiebreak, and John convinced Bjorn to come to NBC Studio and watch the tiebreak together. And again, Dick said, you know, Ted, you go in there and kind of steer the conversation. And for me, what a thrill. I mean, to sit there with those two guys, to watch them relive and talk point by point about one of the great 20 minutes, I think, of, of whatever it was of tennis. Um, those are the things that I think um, – are, are products of the fact that John and I have had this good relationship. And then, look, I'll be the first guy to say it. John has been incredibly gracious to me. A lot of what I've been able to achieve opportunity-wise in tennis has come because John supported me. So I'm front and center and thankful for that. And he's been an incredibly loyal friend, a very loyal friend, which is another value that has nothing to do with work and everything to do with a measure of the kind of person that a lot of people don't know about John. I've had the great fortune to see that firsthand. It's amazing how often you hear that about him, that for, for whatever. And the guy, you know, he's, he's in his, what is he, born in 59. You know, he's in his late 50s now, and there's still a mystique, and there's still a certain unknowability. And it's amazing how often his loyalty is, is referenced still. John, you know, it's funny. I t- told the story the other night to some people. It's still in Paris uh, that in my time of hanging, I mean, in the Wimbledon years, for example, 12 years that I had the incredible a chance to work the Wimbledon tournament and work the finals with John and Chris and Mary. And in the booth, Val Kilmer sat one year and watched a set in the booth with us. Uh, I mean, stayed for an entire set in the booth. <laughs> Jude Law and Skinner Miller come in one year, and uh, Colin Farrell came in one year. Uh, I spent probably a half an hour one day talking to Chrissy Hind, and another day at least 20 minutes talking to Robert Plant. Oh, man. I mean, you just can't make this for someone of my generation. That I had 20 minutes one-on-one with Robert Plant, because he w- and all of these people were coming to see John. They all came to see John. And huh? at some point, he's running around doing something else, so I'm the one that would sit there and entertain them while John was finishing his previous chore. But where else in life is that going to happen? Because you're hanging around John McEnroe? I mean, that's the mystique that he has outside of sport. It's, it's a, I, look, I spent nine years with Barry Bonds every day for nine years. And Barry, who was is the all-time home run king, nowhere near, not even close to the world level of attraction that John McEnroe has. And I, again, would never have guessed that 23 years ago when we started. It's been a heck of a lot of fun to live through it. I'll, uh, I, I, I do think, sadly, John probably benefits from the absence of uh, American champs, by and large. Um, I, I, I feel like, you know, some, some of this is the way he played. Some of this is tennis is global, but they're just, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. He just still has a mystique. We're, we're going on, you know, 25 years since he won majors and more, more than that, you know, we're, we're 30 years since he's won majors and there's, there's still a mystique that attends him that, uh, you, you don't often find what, what's the, um, you mentioned the 2008 Federer Nadal final. What's, what's the best match you've seen? That's it. I mean, that's the best, absolutely the best sporting event I've ever called, the best. And it was a combination of, of the two players involved, the, the, the moment in which they were playing where Roger was the undisputed king and Rafa had already 
established his chops on clay, but now he was trying to come to grass. Could he, could he actually do this on grass with the rain delays and the tension and, uh, you know, then in the fading light where really they probably shouldn't even have played the last game or two, but they did. All of that was the single best uh, sporting event uh, that I've ever called. And again, the John story is we were on the air seven and a half hours live. Wow. I think I had one two-minute bathroom break, and we just finished. And, of course, you were so wired and so intense that you don't understand it until 10 minutes later we went back to the uh, television building and just, like, everybody's shoulders dropped six feet, and you collapse. And then immediately they piled us in cars and took us back to the hotel, and John called me and said, come to my room. And he opened up a beer, and we just had one beer together 15 minutes or so before we went downstairs and joined the rest of our crew for the for the final night um, but John just looked at me and he said, he said the same thing he said you'll never see anything like that again Ted never I mean that's coming from a guy that wanted so I was, I was gonna say that's uh he, he, he'd been there yeah that, that, he, that understood. Match, uh... he understood the significance of it and and that 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 single event and it's it's a shame because we'll never see that again it's a shame from the drama standpoint that because of the roof, that whole dramatic scene can never happen again. It still doesn't change the fact you must have the roof, but it, we, we will lose the ability to have that something of that magnitude happen. You know, you know that was the last match ever played on roofless center court. Yeah. I mean, if this, if this had been a year later, they would have turned on the lights and we would have had a 20-minute break and they would have, the roof would have come up and it would have been an indoor match and nobody would have had to have been worried about when the sun was setting or uh whether the court was too slick um i was thinking you you also you know you know what i remember i think were, were you not in the booth when richard williams in 2000 when when venus won were you not uh in the booth when richard williams was dancing on your head he literally thought he was going to fall on me. did you know what was, did you know what I was didn't. going on could you see in your monitor that there's there's a man about six inches from my head dancing yeah that was my first wimbledon so i had clearly never been there before had and was not, I was figuring this out. And I remember as it happened, you know, Venus winning, and then I'm hearing this stuff pounding, and what, what the heck is going on here? And then I looked at the monitor and saw Richards, and I went, oh my goodness. And I mean, literally thought he was going to fall into our laps. I mean, that's how scary it felt. Um, but that was the, um, you know, you talk about the Williams family dynamic through the years, and I always remember that first Wimbledon, John, because Venus beat Martina Hingis that year. And that was the match right. that, that set everybody off because it, it, it sort of set the, the, I think it changed the paradigm that Martina Hingis's brief run at the top of the sport was done, that the game had changed. And, and this incredible athlete, Venus Williams, with her strength and her great game was here. And by the way, she had a, a sister coming right behind her. It changed that dynamic. Uh, that, that's what I remember about that event, that the Venus Williams won the title. And far and away, the second best player was Serena Williams. Yes, exactly. And they played whichever, I mean, how the things changed, whichever final it was, and I, I, the years run together. But Venus beat Serena in the final at Wimbledon, and Serena was so distraught, Venus had to console her. Yeah, right, right. And right. had to instruct her to remember to curtsy on the way out. And yeah, I think that was Venus, 2001, right, right. Right, Venus, was that 01? Was that the year? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you remember the year, thank you, because then what happened the following spring, Serena beats Venus 
in the French final, the only time Venus ever made the final, and Venus takes the pictures. Yeah, exactly. And now, of course, we've gone, you know, the dynamic has totally changed to where Serena is the one chasing records. And I was going to say, if I, if I told you that 14 years later, uh, Serena would still be part of the NBC broadcast on the <laughs> final Saturday. Well, uh, no, I'm thrilled. And by the way, that you asked me the best match. The best women's match I ever called and saw personally was Venus Williams beating Lindsay in the 2005 final. Right, uh, right. I thought that was the most brilliant display of tennis by two women at the same time it's the it's the magic formula of sport when both teams or both competitors play their best at the same time and the second best was justine and in beating uh capriati in the 2003 that, that US open open, match, yeah. the, the incredible friday night women's semis double header that was the second match and the quality of playing that match was extraordinary and that was the second best those those by those stand out like with third place being distant. Those are the two best women's matches I've ever seen. I don't know if it's distressing or uh, a function of the cast of characters that those were both more than a decade ago. But uh, <laughs> what? Uh, how, how different is it? I mean, you call so many sports and have called so many sports. Um, how different is tennis? Uh, well, it, it's dramatically different for an announcer in one way, especially for me in my role. When I started back in the 80s and really didn't know very much a guy who was an agent in the sport but a very good guy pulled me aside and he said hey remember one thing about tennis that tennis is the one sport where an announcer can never go wrong saying nothing and it's the absolute greatest piece of advice i can i can exactly remember who it was where he said it to me <laughs> i can remember it to this day because it was absolutely scintillating one sentence wisdom and something I've always tried to keep in mind because, John, as you would understand, in the list of complaints that you get as a tennis broadcaster, number one is you talk too much, and number two is not even in the same solar system. <laughs> so um, I often laugh, I have to say this here, because, of, because tennis, great tennis fans listen to this, I'm sure, is that for years I've heard this, why can't you be like the British announcers right, who never right, talk? Right. Why can't you be like them? You know what I mean? And, of course, you, what most people, even if they're well-intentioned when they say that, they don't understand that the BBC has no commercials. So they don't speak during games because they then have a minute and a half to speak and say everything they want during the change. The but, but even so, I mean, I find, I mean, part of this is just growing up watching American sports broadcasts. I find that maddening that you've got, uh, you know, you've got Tim Henman, you've got all these, all these people in the booth and this accumulated wisdom and this expertise and they're watching a match and... You'll go points upon points upon points without a word. And I'm thinking, surely you guys have opinion. Like, tell me what I'm supposed to be uh, noticing here. I find it very jarring to, to watch those BBC broadcasts and have so much time elapse without any sort of insight. I mean, I think when, when Roddick goes there, he, he tells this great story about how he has to, like, pinch himself to keep quiet. But when he talks, it's worth hearing. Yeah. Um, well, I also think, John, real quickly on that, I've been very proud, and I know John is excellent at this. Uh, during some of the great Wimbledon finals we called, especially the men's finals, uh, John was the 2008 Federer Nadal. John was brilliant at understanding the significance of the fifth set of that and go back and listen to the tape and how little he spoke. We didn't say much at all in a 9-7 fifth set of that. Just basically spoke when, when necessary. Uh, 
where the complaints generally come to me about talking too much are first round, second round, you know, one and one blowout. And you do feel a responsibility to try to keep people somewhat engaged and right, entertained right. when the, when the match is not worthy of that. And that's where I think most of the complaints generally fire in. And the other thing I'll tell you, one of the greatest TV experiences, John, I had was the year after Andre retired and he came back to the Open and we were still doing the U.S. Open on USA and Andre agreed to come up and <laughs> that's right. yeah, yeah, commentate that's right. on a match right. with us. So this was the first television he had done. No, uh, no, no production meeting for him either, huh? Oh, no, no. Uh, Andre didn't need it. But so now here, you know, we knew John and I were warned that Andre was going to, not warned, but we were thrilled about it. But we were told we knew he was going to come up and join us for this match. And it was a big, I think it was a quarterfinal night match. So it's one of our last nights on USA. And what I'm saying is, so again, I had to adopt the three-person uh, view and my mother formula saying there isn't a person on God's green earth that wants to hear me talk when I've got John and Andre up there. So I pulled way back and John pulled back, which was extraordinary. He understood. That's how smart John is. And Andre really carried the show as it should have been. And that was the night that Andre first told the story about Boris Pecker sticking his tongue out. Uh, the you know, tell, had, yeah, the great tell, right? Yeah, we had never heard that before. None right. of us knew that. Right. I mean, I'm sure players in the locker room may have known that, but Andre told the story that night about how he could tell Boris' serve pattern by whether or not he stuck his tongue out. And that was the, again, that was the excellence that Andre brought that night. But the, the wisdom of John to understand that was a night that wasn't really about him either. That was about the special opportunity to have Andre there. I'm sure Roger was playing. I'm almost positive he was. Uh, but you had John, a great champion, and Andre together. All right, Ted Robinson, hold that thought. We are recording this on a Tuesday, which means the Warriors are absolutely dominating the early going of the NBA Finals. We will call this a best-of-seven series for the tennis crowd, but right now it's looking a lot like straight sets. Can Cleveland get back on the board? All the pressures on LeBron and the Cavaliers as they go home to Cleveland. And on Open Floor, SI's NBA podcast, Ben Goliver and Andrew Sharp break down the games and tell the best off-court stories. That's Open Floor, SI's NBA podcast. Find it on si.com backslash podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Is is Andre the guy, if, you, if there were one player out there that you'd like to see as an analyst, that isn't now, is there, there's someone in addition to Andre? Yeah, I mean, he's the slam dunk. Right. Um, I, I, I don't think there's any question to me the most underrated and underused Male analyst is Jim Courier. You know, John is John. He's premier and preeminent, and, and that's unquestioned. But Jim is by far, to me, the most underutilized. He's incredibly smart. He has his own style and his own way of doing things, which is perfect. Uh, and I think it's brilliant. And I think Lindsay is Lindsay's just an amazingly smart woman's analyst. Again, rare because she's a, a champion who's still contemporary and knows the games of many of the players that are still out there. Um, I feel like both of them also just get TV. They, they get the bites. They, they figure out how they can have some bite with actually make a substantive point without going too far into look-at-me territory. I, it's, I, I agree with you on both of them. It's, it's remarkable to me that neither of them have spent a day on, on a college campus. But, <laughs> uh, but, I, but I feel like they also just, just get sort of the drill, that they— have a, have opinions and they have points worth making, but they do it with well, dignity. I mean, it's it's really remarkable. It's it's harder than I think people think it is as well. 
Well, John, I know you've had Andre on this podcast, and I've had the opportunity to do a handful, three or four events with Andre in recent years that have surrounded education. And, and I've had the chance to talk to him, and this is, of course, well past his playing days and way beyond tennis, but I've said this in, in speeches I make. I've never in my life been around an athlete in any sport that has made a greater transformation for the better than Andre Agassi from what he was and, and no formal education. We all know what Andre was as a teenager to what he's become. Right. right. What he represents is, and has nothing to do with tennis. It's what he represents in life is absolutely mind blowing. And again, having the only reason I say this is having this incredible opportunity I've had to be with Andre at some of these events and have to do Q and a or, set him up to talk about education and then having a chance one day to actually be with him for an hour and talk about this. He's not faking it. And that's the, that's the amazing thing. He, he knows to the minutest detail what he's talking about. That's what blows your mind. That this is not just a surface transparent involvement by someone. This is a dedication and a devotion to a cause. And I, you know, how, I mean, we all get sledgehammered across the head, don't we, when it's someone who didn't have a formal education and has devoted his early adult life now to providing the best possible education for people? Right. No, I, I've, I never, feel, I've uh, never seen it. I, I feel like with Andre, I feel it's almost like the Williams sisters, where we've heard the story so many times and it's, it's kind of, it's been done, and especially in this tennis ecosystem. I mean, the, the two most winning players from the last quarter century are sisters who shared a bunk bed? <laughs> that Andre Agassi marries Steffi Graf and then becomes this education pioneer who's, who's <laughs> traveling around the country to conferences to figure out new methods of classroom configuration. And no matter how many times you tell that story, it's still, it's still remarkable, but we sort of our eyes glaze over it because we've heard it before. You know, John, um, what's great about tennis, I mean, this is what's awesome about this sport. The women's final Saturday, what happened at the end of the women's final, right? The runner-up... An American spoke in French. Right, right, right. The champion, a Spaniard slash Venezuelan, spoke in English. I mean, that's it's absolutely brilliant. I, I, I that part of this sport, so I'm so enamored by that. It's such a model to me for every uh, every American sport should have its team players watch things like that, and every American team sport player. I've said this, John should. Absolutely, they should show if they're in their training camp every year. They should run the best five minutes of Rafa Nadal's body language. They should just put a five-minute DVD together, five-minute uh, um, you know digital clip of Rafa Nadal's body language. Have you ever seen any better you, than that? Wait, 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 you lost me on that. Wait, why is that? The last five minutes of to of watch Rafa Nadal's body language on the court. I have never in my life seen a player conduct himself. Better even when situation is bad than Rafa Nadal. Oh, oh, well, I, I thought you. I thought you meant the uh, the 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 ticks and the the, the Oh mannerisms. no, I'm talking about no, just he... his presence, his body, the way oh, yeah, he carries the... himself on the court. Right. This guy could be down triple match point. He's got a look on his face like uh, you better pack a lunch, buddy, because this is going to be a long afternoon. Yeah, no, I th- I just think that's an extraordinary. And look, we all know when we see an athlete whose shoulders slump, we used right. to call him in baseball the Gumby shoulder look. <laughs> you know, and and. You know, when you see that, you know someone's defeated and someone's beaten. And Rafa, to me, is the quintessential example in any sport of an athlete that never once, well, I shouldn't say that, one time I saw it, and that was last year's French 
when Djokovic hammered him. That's the only time I've ever seen Rafa not have premier body language. That's a great point. Um, all right, let's, um, I, you know, I, I was going to ask you sort of specific Richard Deitch-type process questions, but I think, I think the more interesting question to close on is just wh- where do you see tennis in sportscape? I mean, this is a sport that it, it probably does not have the prominence, at least in the U.S., that it did when you began calling matches at the same time. You know, you, you go to the French Open, you'll go to uh, even the Olympics. It still seems to have some so, some esteem. It, is it, it is what it is, or are you frustrated by some of the, the marketing challenges and the weather and the injuries? I mean, wh- where do you see, especially coming from the perspective that you do where you see so many other sports, wh- where do you see tennis right now? Well, yeah, that's something I think, John, that has to be answered in the, in the global sense to me. I and mean, that's what I keep being struck by is as we maybe we've gone through this phase here where we haven't had a superstar american male player andy roddick was outstanding had a terrific career um but clearly played in the same era with federer and rafa and novak we have had we've had venus and serena who have been superstar female players but since we haven't had that superstar male player um you know the game has clearly gone so much to the international phase and that's where money is, right? And doesn't everything follow money? Uh, it blows my mind when you go around the world and you see these events and you see the money that's being spent by people. And, and I did it for a dozen years. You'll be at Wimbledon in a couple of weeks. And every year I get uh, emailed questions asking me, how do I get Wimbledon tickets? And right, I tell them, the right. toughest ticket I've ever encountered in sports, 10 times harder than any Super Bowl, is Wimbledon. Right. Because they sleep out overnight on a golf course for a ground <laughs> Right? For grounds, exactly. they sleep overnight, and Americans don't get that. Uh, most most don't get that. So where where I think tennis is, and I think it's quite healthy in this regard, John, is to me we, it is a niche sport in America. It has a very passionate following, a very uh, I think a very educated following. It clearly appeals to a higher demographic when you look at the sponsors that are that are spending money to buy. Um, it's a it's not a mass sale. Um, I know that you know, the French Open is a tough sell for television. It's a very tough sell. But those who do choose to sponsor are clearly targeting at a fairly high demo, which I think that's healthy. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being a niche sport, because when you go to Indian Wells, as you did this year again, and you see that, you, it's hard to think tennis is in trouble when yeah, you go exactly, there. Yeah, exactly. And, and when you go to Cincinnati in, in August, I will be at Davis Cup in Portland, and Davis Cup will be tremendous. People will drive... It's the parking lot test, right? I'm going to go through the parking lot at Davis Cup, and I'll count how many states I see license plates from. People will travel a long distance to watch this because they love tennis. So I think that's, to me, where tennis ultimately goes in the next decade. And then the the last point would be, where's the next transformational athlete on the American male side? We've been blessed with Venus and Serena for 15 to 20 years. The, yeah. I think the men's game needs to have that next player. Agree, and uh, I I feel like it's the, the the longer we go, the longer we go without it, the more problematic it becomes on on any number of levels. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just no. I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's just there's just a difference. And and, and John, here's something else, and I don't know where you come down on this, but I've I used to talk a little bit about this to Arlen Cantarian. And when he was running the USTA Pro Tennis Division, I really respected Arlen a ton. And I used to talk to him about this, and, and 
probably low on the reality level, but to me, I thought it was a high concept level, is why can't we have a U.S. tennis tour? I mean, the PGA Tour is largely in America, right? So American golfers play in America, and they play 25, 30 weeks a year. Why can't we have? Oh, ab- absolutely, exactly. And then ev- everyone can get together for the majors. But uh, if it, no, I think you're totally right. If there's there's some 22 year old kid who played college tennis who's from Chillicothe, Ohio, people will watch him in a way that you know a, a Pablo Cuevas uh, might not have that appeal. And then everyone can everyone can get together. You know those four, five, six, eight times a year. But uh, no, what was the response to that? Because I I think that's something that tennis has kind of missed the boat on. Have have these regional tours, have everybody come together, and it's easier to sell sponsorships, it's an easier TV play, you're not dealing with time zones. Um, What what was was Arlen's response? No, I think, think, well, I I know, I'm fairly certain I know, Arlen's response was more, that's what the U.S. Open Series will be. And unfortunately, that was, again, I think that was an excellent concept the execution of it hasn't worked, and largely because Federer and Nadal and Djokovic and the other great players from the, around the world aren't coming to the U.S. in mid-July to start playing, and they're not yeah, going to stay here exactly. for two months. It won't happen. Exactly. So those first few weeks do become a little bit of a sampling of what I'm promoting. I'm talking about more of an eight, ten, you know, week, and it could be split. It could be three weeks in the spring. It could be between um, uh, Miami and and. Uh, Madrid, let's say, so that there's that period of time where the Americans don't want to go spend that much time in Europe. And yeah, exactly. Couple, right, right. No, tournaments. I... And you do a couple in the summer and a couple in the fall, but you can you bundle them together in a something of a series and allow, as you said, the the, the 100 to 200 ranked players, the terrific college players, men and women both, that just end their college careers in May, and give them a place to play and hopefully build a little momentum for that. And God, John, we see it between Davis Cup and Fed Cup. There's no shortage of places in America that want tennis. People want tennis to come to their cities, and that would be a way to me to give it. Now, I don't know the reality of the television component. That's a different question there. Um, But we've seen how the U.S. Open Series television, last year it took a big hit. Uh, USDA made a decision that didn't help the U.S. Open Series. It diminished its television presence dramatically, and I don't see how that helps the sport at all. Well, I mean, no, and I think the the U.S. Open Series is sort of fracturing as we speak and uh i i think you're absolutely right there if there were a series of events and it were the dennis kudlas that could sort of build some build some brand and it was happening in u.s time zones and all these markets that used to be able to support a tournament it might not be as big a tournament as they used to have but if chicago and dallas texas and some of these other places could have an event for a week um i think that would really help american tennis but Here's, here's an example. Cece Bellis. Now, she lives very close to where I live, and I've right. had a chance to know her a little bit and her family. Now, she's uh, in Florida right now. She didn't, didn't even go to the French Open this year. She's in Florida working down there, trying to better her game, and I think is going to make a decision pretty soon about uh, whether to go to college or not. But my point is about saying is, is that in this past year, I've had people say, where's Cece Bellis? Whatever happened to her? And we have this, you know, Francis Tiafo, who's had a nice buildup on the men's side through sure. the years, as well as our, you know, we have a half a dozen good men's juniors or 18-year-old players. But the point is you shouldn't have tennis fans coming up to me asking me, where are they? What's happened to them? And this is the kind of setup to me that would allow them a place to play, staying at home without spending crazy money flying all over the world to play challengers. Uh, some structure like that. I, I, 
I'm totally with you. If you're, uh, where that exists. I, if, if, I mean, well, we, we could play this, but you know, if, if, if you're Nike, what would you rather have Francis TFO, uh, playing in Chicago and Milwaukee and Hilton Head in Dallas or qualifying events in Europe? I think for the TV, it's, it's a better play. I think there's a lot to recommend. All right. We've, uh, Jamie's giving me the signal. We've, we've hit our, uh, we've, we've hit our limit. This where you're, you're off to, uh, the 49ers land. Give, give the people a sense of sort of what, in between tennis events, uh, you you got plenty going on. Is this, this a 49ers day? Uh, the, the 49ers mini camp's going on, so I'm going to swing by there and watch a little bit the next few days. And then I'm actually at Tennis Channel this weekend for uh, the grass court first weekend. Okay. Uh, and then next week, uh, actually, to Indianapolis, Wertheim's home oh, for my nine mother days country. for the Olympic diving trials. So oh, man. It's an Olympic year for me, so there's a, that'll take me away from tennis uh, uh, because I'll have nine days in Indy and then three weeks in Rio, but I will do the I will do the Davis Cup in Portland and then the Washington D.C. event, which Tennis Channel covers. So I'll get a little bit of summertime hardcore tennis in. So you, you got Paris, the Bay Area, Indianapolis, and Rio. I, I won't <laughs> comment on uh, the weak link there. All right, this was uh, this was great. Thanks for I'm glad glad we did this and we'll we'll do it again. John, it was great hanging with you in Paris and Crochet uh, all right, that was this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast with Ted Robinson. As you can tell, just an all-around good guy, great company, great guy to talk to. Not much in the ego department, but a lot in the skills department. He covers all sorts of sports, does college basketball, started out as a baseball commentator. He also is the voice of the San Francisco 49ers right now, but we know him and love him for his tennis. Um, again, I think there's some great tips for aspiring broadcasters there. Sublimate your ego and uh, tee up your your analyst, and you can go far in this business. Um, one last Twitter call out: thanks to our extraordinary producer Jamie Lasanti, who's enjoyed listening to this last hour of tennis stories. You can follow me on Twitter at John underscore Wertheim. Subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Hear the whole SI network at si.com backslash. And you know what? In the spirit of being a good soldier. Check out 60 Minutes Sports this week as well. We did a joint project with them, not tennis-related, but NFL. They were exceptionally generous about uh, allowing us to promote it on Sports Illustrated. So we will return the favor and send people to 60 Minutes Sports Show this week. All right, that's it. We'll do it again next week. Take care, everyone.